0: This is Rebecca Green for the Palooza podcast, and I am so excited today to have Alana Robinson here with me today. How did I do? Perfect. <laughs>
1: Thank you so oh,
0: much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. You are... Um, A very fascinating lady. She is a parenting coach and CEO of Uncommon Sense Parenting, as well as a registered early childhood educator, mom of two, and military wife. I have to ask right now, what does Uncommon Sense Parenting mean? I love that. Oh,
1: my clients actually named the company. Um, I... For the longest time, I was just me. I was just ran the company under my name. In fact, the company is still registered legally under my name. Um, And as things got bigger, I was like, kind of feel like we need to have like a name here to kind of separate me from the philosophy. And and my clients came up with uncommon sense parenting because they felt like common sense wasn't helping them. It was Mm. the uncommon knowledge that they had picked up by following me and my philosophy and the resources that I connect them with that had really put them ahead and they're like it's it's uncommon sense it's stuff we know that other people don't and so they named the company and I just ran with it
0: that is an awesome name I read the name twice today and I was like uncommon sense I have to ask her about that Now, I would love to know what inspired you to become a parenting coach.
1: Oh, so I was an early interventionist for about a decade, a little under a decade. I got pregnant just at the end there. Um, And just as I got pregnant, I got injured and I ended up with a concussion and my employer at the time, I was working for an early intervention agency in Alberta, and they freaked out a little bit because they obviously didn't want me to lose the baby or anything. So sure. They, were, they put me behind a desk in a parent coaching role. And at the time, I thought my life was over because I loved working frontline with kids. I loved getting to know a child on a really deep level and being able to really understand how their brain worked. And so I thought like, this is it, I'm done. I'm never gonna be able to work frontline again. And then I fell in love with parent coaching because I saw the impact of parents understanding why their children are doing what they're doing had on that child and on the entire child's community. So I fell in love with it, went on maternity leave. While I was on maternity leave, my agency had some funding cut. And so a lot of the people who I'd been coaching for the agency came and asked if I would do it privately which I did. And then things just kind of snowballed from there. (laughs) That's awesome.
0: That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that, you know, the understanding of what's going on with our kids is, is where it's all about. And I think that one of the things that you do, I love that you help parents with scripts. Okay. What to say when, Um, can you give us an example that parents can apply of, when a parent doesn't know what to say
1: and how you've helped them? Yeah. So I find scripts really helpful because when we're in fight or flight, when we're like in that freeze position where it's like, this is happening and I don't know what to do. um, That's a really bad position to be in when you're trying to make decisions. Yes, (laughs) it is. is not functioning. And it's the same for our kids, right? When our kids don't know what to do, they go into that kind of, I don't know what to do state. And they don't actually have access to their knowledge. They don't have access to all of the stuff that they know to make a good decision. It's the same thing for us. So scripts are great because they're kind of a pre-made decision. Mm There's something that you can whip out without having to think about it. And if you've already decided what you're going to say in that situation, then it takes the pressure off, which means you're going to have more energy left over to deal with the fallout (laughs) than with the initiation. Um, So like, A big one is hitting in my community, like kids, they get overwhelmed, they lose access to their neocortex and they just go right into that fight or flight and they come at you. And most parents don't know what to do about that because they start perseverating on the hitting itself and not what the hitting is trying to communicate. And so I always like to tell parents, like, you can set that boundary. I will not let you hit me. And then depending on if you're calm enough to deal with it in the moment or not, either I need to take a break and I will come back and deal with you in a minute and go calm yourself down first. Or you seem very frustrated. You seem very tired and try and name the emotion behind the action, not what they're doing, because the doing is just a symptom of the actual feeling.
0: Makes so much sense. With the time change, we just... um... (laughs) We we just changed our clocks and, you know, I just took my children to school and my youngest is just like so tired, just this adjustment. So like, I know that her behavior the last couple days has to do with the fact that her body's
1: adjusting, yeah. you know, I know you're really tired. Exactly. Right. Like naming the feeling, the emotion behind the actions because children will just do in that moment of um, disconnection where they can't actually access their knowledge, they'll just do what is the fastest route to their goal. And if the fastest route to their goal is to smack you so you get out of their way, they're going to do it whether they know they should do it or not. Mm.
0: Makes so much sense. And you're talking a lot about being proactive versus being reactive. So I think that the best thing we can do as parents is be proactive versus reactive. So do do you feel, right? Do you feel like knowing what to say is part of the way to get to that point?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm all about understanding what's kind of going on under the hood, right? Like what's going on in their brain to make this happen. And the problem with behavior versus like other things we teach our kids, like academics, math, spelling, how to clean a kitchen, that kind of stuff is that we generally with those things know the progression of skills right like math for instance we know we have to teach them addition first and then subtraction and then division and multiplication and then they can get fancy by combining those things in different ways parents aren't as aware of the progression of skills when it comes to behavior and the progression of development so i understand why it's difficult to be proactive for parents because they're not able to see where the problems might come in before they happen. And so we get stuck in this cycle of there's a problem, I fix it, there's a problem, I fix it, and you never get a chance to get out ahead of it. Mm, good point. Um, so it can be really, really difficult when you don't know what's going on under the hood to anticipate where the problems are going to come from. And yeah, using things like scripts can really help in the moment, but ultimately you have to kind of dig into how your child's brain is actually developing so that you can see like, okay, when they're four years old, they're going to be going through this thing called the limbic leap. And they're going to get very emotional, irrational, and defensive. So how am I going to deal with that? (laughs) So that how am I going to make them feel safe? Because I know that when they're in that stage of development, they don't feel safe at all. And that's where having a parenting coach can really help because I've guided hundreds of children and parents through these stages. So I can almost pretty accurately give parents an idea when they're like, well, this is happening, okay, how old is your kid? Four and a half, ah, okay, this is the problem. Well, and and I even
0: feel myself calming with you labeling. It's like, what is developmentally appropriate, right? So if we know something is developmentally expected
1: It decreases our
0: reactivity right there.
1: It makes it much less personal. And that's why I love talking about behavior from a developmental perspective, because if you know that your child, for instance, is going through that limbic leap and they're being super emotional and rational, most parents take that very personally because they're like, you're four. You should understand how things work by now. You know, you're a human being (laughs) at this point. You're not a baby. But if you understand that, okay, their amygdala is going through a massive growth spurt, it's literally tripling in volume, which means it's extremely active and sensitive. And that means that they're going to perceive anything new or unexpected as danger. Then, when they perceive something new or unexpected as danger, you don't take that as a personal affront. They're not being defiant, they're not trying to give you a hard time. You just sprung a change in their schedule on them, and that's how you're expecting them. You know, there's that thing called the Pamelian effect. And I think I actually have a podcast episode on it but the basic idea is that your expectations create your results and so if you expect your children to behave in a certain way you're almost guaranteed to make that happen because that's how you're going to interact with them versus if you're expecting that they're going through a developmental stage and they're very reactive because their brain literally can't determine what's safe from what's danger then you're going to treat them like they need an indication of safety instead of freaking out on them for being defiant, which creates more danger, more, more lack of safety, right? Oh my gosh, it and makes so much results sense. And then are going to be so different. Yeah.
0: No, that makes so much sense. We need to know what's happening with our kids. Like, I know two of my three kids are teenagers, <laughs> and I know they're going to roll their eyes at
1: me, Right. <laughs> But we don't talk about that so much other than like, you know, there's like the ages and stages and the, the wonder weeks thing for like infants, but then we're kind of like, okay, well, your child's two now. Good luck, you yep. But there's so much development. There is more brain development between the ages of two and six than there is any other time during their life. Wow. So it's literally an ongoing, like, and parents will say this to me, it's like, you know, I just figure out what works and then they change. And it's like, it's yeah, true. they do. They do because there's that much development happening.
0: Oh my gosh. That is one of the truest lines right there. I tell people that all the time. I'm like, don't think you have it figured out because they'll change it tomorrow.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Keep us (laughs) on our toes.
0: They do keep us. uh, It's never dull with children. I say my life is never boring. (laughs) Yeah. Never a dull moment. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Can we go over some behaviors that parents complain about and talk yeah. about responses to that absolutely um so many meltdowns like complete meltdowns <sighs> can you give parents a tip for that one
1: yeah so first we have to make sure that we know that there's a difference between a tantrum and a meltdown mm. cuz parents tend to conflate those two things cuz they look similar but they're yes. very different a tantrum is conscious and purposeful i want the chocolate and I am going to stand here and stomp my feet and scream in an attempt to get you to be so frustrated that you just give me the chocolate so I'll stop. And as soon as you give them the thing that they're asking for, they do stop. They go about the merry way. That's a tantrum. That is something that we want to make sure we give a predictable and consistent boundary around and we stick to it like blue. There's no going over it, no going under it, no going around it. It's a brick wall that you cannot go through. A meltdown, however, is completely different. A meltdown is when your child's nervous system gets overwhelmed and they cannot regulate. They cannot calm down. And generally, it's because they don't feel safe, which doesn't mean they aren't safe. Right. (laughs) I'll often say that to parents and they're like, my child's perfect. I'm like, it's not that they're not objectively safe. It's that they perceive danger. From something in their environment and that might be you that isn't there and their nervous system gets so overwhelmed trying to protect them that they just cannot calm down and I tell parents like think of a time where you like saw red or you got so um emotional that you just like no matter how many times people are like you're all right everything's fine like you were like, no, 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 I'm not okay. Right. And that's what a meltdown is. Usually it's for children has a large sensory component to it. So there's too much noise. There's too much light. Something doesn't taste right. They're feeling really weird in their body in some way. There's usually a heavy sensory component that they feel like they can't manage. And what that will result in is nuclear level meltdown where they're screaming, crying, kicking on the floor, you know, I want the pink cup. Okay, here's the pink cup. No, I want the blue cup, right? You give them what they want and it still doesn't solve the problem because it's not about what they want. It's about how they're feeling. Yes. And oftentimes parents will get very, very frustrated with that because they're like, I don't understand. I'm giving them what they want. When you're in a meltdown, you literally lose access to that top level of your brain that makes you a civilized human being, your neocortex. That's where your knowledge lives, your language lives, your executive functioning skills live, and your reason lives. And so when our brain perceives danger, it goes, okay, all of that stuff is nice, but none of it is necessary to keep me alive. So I'm going to stop sending more than the bare minimum of blood and oxygen up to that Part of the brain because i don't actually need it right now i need to keep myself safe and that's the limbic systems job and the limbic system has no reason it just has intuition it has emotions our memories and our security system our amygdala so when we're in that meltdown state parents start trying to reason with their kids their kids physically cannot process the language that is being given to them. And that's why they're just spewing random crap out of their mouth. Like I want the pink cup. No, I want a candy cane. No, I want Nana. Like it's their brain using whatever language it can grasp to try and communicate to the parents. I'm not okay. And I don't know how to fix this. I need your help. So if your child's in a meltdown and usually you can tell that because anything you say escalates it right they can't access their language so any language you give them their brain's going can't deal with that right now and just escalates the tantrum or the meltdown um so if your child's in a meltdown the best thing to do is to attempt to make them feel safe so Sit down. I usually like to give myself like a full legs length, at least for my child, so that I'm like not within the swing zone, but I'm close enough to intervene if I need to. I usually sit cross-legged with my hands open on my knees, and I focus on taking deep measured breaths. Four breaths in, hold for four. Usually I'll do like box breathing. And why that helps with a meltdown is because we're present. We're here to help once they're able to actually perceive that we're not an attack. We stop escalating them. We stop giving them information that they can't process and therefore that their brain is going, nope, that's danger too. We have a very open stance. So there's no like, often parents will stand by their kids and they'll have their like arms crossed or their hands on their hips. And it's a lot of, it's very threatening to the child. Whereas when you're on their level, you have an open stance. They're like, okay, well, that's not dangerous that looks welcoming, actually. And when we take deep breaths, we have these things in our brain called mirror neurons. And their sole job is to look at what someone else is doing and see if we should do it too. That's why yawns are contagious. Mm-hmm. And just as I say it, I can feel the yawn in my jaw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Right? Like somebody yawns and it's almost impossible not to yawn too, because our mirror neurons go, oh, they're tired. Are we tired? Oh, nope. <laughs> and But we can hack that. And so if we sit down and we take nice deep breaths, which activates our vagal tone, which is this nerve in our back of our neck that sends signals to our brain of whether we're safe or not. And so we take these big measured breaths which helps calm our vagal tone and it helps their neuro, neuro neurons go, ooh, mom's taking these big deep breaths. Oh, would that feel good? And generally they'll do one or two and their vagus nerve goes, yeah that feels good. And then they'll start doing it unconsciously. So we can use like our body language. We don't necessarily have to say anything to help our kids calm down and feel safe. Generally, once they start talking sense again, like they'll start saying things that actually mean something, that's when you can start talking to them again. You might not be able to reason with them yet. I would suggest empathizing with them. You're very upset. You really wish that you could do X. You seem like that was very overwhelming for you. Your face is all flushed. You're all red. Do you need a hug? Like empathizing with the emotions, generally after a while, they'll start telling you what the problem is and then you can actually start reasoning with them. But you have to wait for their brain to have their language back. And the best indication of that is when they actually start speaking in sentences. That is such good advice. That is
0: such good advice. I love that you label everything and why they're doing what they're doing. I think parents need to know that. And it's so funny that the parents don't realize that their kids can't function at that moment. So that has helped me.
1: (laughs) And again, that's why I love doing this from this perspective because it's so much less personal when you can go, they can't process language right now. And therefore, anything I say to them is going to be perceived as danger. So I'm going to shut up. And it doesn't feel like you're letting them get away with it. It doesn't feel like you're, you know, a lot of dads will be like, they don't know why they're what they're doing is wrong. You're right, they don't, because the part of their brain that knows this is wrong is up there in the attic screaming to be let out. Like, it can't function right now so yeah you're right they don't know that this is wrong in this particular moment they will once it comes back online though and usually like most of the parents that i work with they're surprised because when they don't address the behavior they address the emotions once the child calms down they go oh, i'm so sorry mommy, daddy i didn't mean to. every time you know, and it's and their child apologizes of their own volition and without any prompting, and I'm like, because they don't want to freak out. They're not trying to give you a hard time. They didn't feel safe. Doesn't mean they weren't safe. They didn't feel safe. They perceived danger where there wasn't any. And once they calmed down and that reasonable, rational part of their brain came back online, it went, well, that was an overreaction. And they're like, <laughs> I messed up. Oh yeah. Big
0: time. You just, you just did the whole circle of what happens. (laughs) And I think for me over this last year, I've gotten to a place where I am like, she's not doing this to me. She needs help. She's in an unresourceful state and me shifting and not taking it personally
1: has just changed everything. Yeah. Because it makes, it makes us so much more calm. And there's the other thing about the limbic system is our limbic system actually gives off brain waves. It's called limbic resonance. And, like, resonance is a musical term. And for those of you who aren't artsy like me, um, when, when in a music setting, if you play a note on an instrument, all the other instruments in the area will very low level vibrate at that same frequency. So they're all like you play a G note, all the other instruments in the area will very low level vibrate at a g note and it's the same thing with limbic resonance If our brain is giving off panic all the other brains in this area are going to pick that up and start low level panicking and it it's a defense mechanism when we were living in caves if somebody perceived a tiger coming at you and their arousal spiked up and they perceive danger You needed a way for the other people in the area to be like, wait, what's wrong with Jim? Oh shoot. There's a tiger. And it's working against us in our modern society because we're all stressed. We're all giving off a lot of energy. And especially this last two years with, Mm. you know, everything, everybody's been on high alert for this unseen danger. There's nothing we can put a pin in and be like, well, you know, this is the danger it's, it's just ever present and it's invisible which isn't great for kids who are developing their security system Um, right no that's true and so when we're calm and our limbic system is giving off resonance of calm our children go well mom's okay dad's okay that must mean i'm safe i'm okay whereas when we're stressed we're frustrated we're taking things personally we start giving off There is danger signals, it's not telepathy, right? There's no language in the limbic system so they can't hear our thoughts. It's just a feeling. It's the reason you can walk into like an office building and you're like, oh, you're the disturber, you're the one in charge, you're very uncomfortable because they're all giving off their own resonance. And so if we're calm, our children are much more likely to be calm. If we're stressed, if we're freaking out, if we're feeling like we're failing, they're going to pick that up and all they're going to perceive is mom or dad is not okay and that means I'm not safe.
0: Mm. Yep my <laughs> my my 15 year old said to me yesterday you're so tense all the time and I
1: was like oh
0: god
1: I gotta work out. <laughs> right it's it's the the justification most moms need to take care of themselves and to put their own self-care ahead of their child's care And you know, like the whole put your oxygen mask on first thing is so cliche, but it's so true. Because if you're not okay, your child cannot be okay. You are the higher order brain. Their brain is referencing your resonance to go, Am I safe, mom? And if you don't feel safe because you haven't had a break, you can't sit down and eat your coffee or your breakfast, you're just not having a bad day, you're dealing with stressors that you're kind of trying to put on the back burner to put your child's care first then your kid's going to pick that up and they're going to be like, something's wrong. I don't know what's wrong, but if you're not okay, that means I'm not safe. And so then we get this like horrible cycle spiral of, you know, kid escalates, parent escalates, kid escalates, parents escalates until somebody blows their lid. And then that's when parents come to me, they're like, I feel like such a bad parent. I completely lost it. And there were signs along the way that I just missed. Oh my gosh, you you are in every home right now.
0: We're (laughs) can we talk about the brain a little more? Because so the rigid thinking. Mm -hmm. Okay. I would say that, you know, some kids are flexible. I think some kids are just naturally more flexible than other yep. kids. And some kids are really rigid with how they think. Yep. Can you help us with the rigid thinking?
1: Yeah. So flexible thinking is an executive functioning skill and executive functioning skills. Think of like your brain as the toolbox and executive functioning tool skills are the tools in the box that we use to do literally everything. Mm. And it's kind of like, if I like, tell you to go cut down a tree and then I give you a dull saw. And you know what to do, you know how to do it, you're willing and able to do it. But you're not going to be able to do it because your tool is weak, you're going to be at that task all day, and you're going to barely make a dent in that tree. Whereas if I teach you to sharpen that tool, you're going to get that tree down very little time and you're going to have energy left over to go and do more trees. So. Flexible thinking is a skill that has to be taught. And yes, just like you know, reading and math, some kids are naturally inclined to being better flexible thinkers and others aren't. But it's something they can learn to do. Children aren't just rigid for the hell of it. They're rigid because they don't know how to be flexible. They haven't had practice being flexible. So the first thing to do is to give them opportunities to practice thinking of things and solving problems in unconventional ways. And this starts like in early childhood with imaginary play and not buying them all the specific accessories for all of their specific characters, right? You've got one cape kid. It can be Batman's cape. It can be Superman's cape. It can be Robin's cape. I don't know who else has a cape, (laughs) Um, but it can be anybody's cape. But you only got the one and it's only this one color and you're gonna have to use your imagination to change that and you know i love playing with preschoolers and just getting a bunch of random crap from the kitchen and being like what do you think this is Mm. and seeing what they come up with you know is it a party hat is it a duck bill um i had a kid once who pulled out a rolling pin and spun it around and was like well this is clearly something to do with engineering and took it over to the block corner and start like planted it between some blocks and he was using it as like a pulley guide Very for cool. his rope so giving children loose parts things that don't look like anything um if you have a reuse center in your area it's a great place to get craft supplies um, or even just keep your recycling like that's one of the easiest ways to teach especially little kids to be flexible thinkers is just be like here, here's a bunch of empty bottles and you know make sure you don't give them anything sharp. But here's a bunch of random crap. Make something out of it. And um, you know as they get older, we have to practice this a little bit more intentionally. With okay, well that's one way to do it. Can you think of a different way to do that thing? Can you think of like I'm gonna lock the front door and I'm gonna leave the back door open and I'm gonna tell you that if you need to come in to pee, you can. What are you gonna do? How are you going to get in the house? Are you going to climb the fence? Are you going to call for me? Like think of different ways you can solve this problem. There's lots of really playful ways that you can practice flexible thinking with your kids. And that's the problem with executive skills. They're use them or lose them. If your child doesn't have an opportunity to practice them, then they don't get stronger. They just stay the dull saw at the bottom of the toolbox that they can't use. And using a, like, just like using a dull saw to cut down a tree, that's going to take way more energy than if it's sharp. Yeah. And so when you're like, okay, think of another way to do this. If your child's flexible thinking is weak, they're going to do it once and then they're going to be exhausted and they're not going to be able to do anything else. They're going to just like freak out the next time you put a demand on them, especially if it's the same demand. So we have to be conscious of, okay, my kid's not very good at flexible thinking. So I'm going to give this opportunity to practice, but then we have to go and do something that's going to refill their tank. They're going to need a break after because asking them to do that two, three, four times, they don't have the energy for that.
0: That's such good advice. I I think that so many people don't know that. And you know, I want to say as my kids get older, even my nine-year-old, I will say to them, what do you think? You know, and I try to like ask them what they think of situations, even if I know what
1: I'm going to do. Yeah. You know what I How mean? How would you do this? Like yes. my eight-year-old, the other day, he was getting really frustrated with the video game. And I going to say right now, I'm not a video game fan. I didn't grow up with them. I don't understand them. My <laughs> husband's the tech guy. Um, and, but daddy was gone and he was playing Zelda something or other. And he was really frustrated and he was like, mom, I need your help. And I was like, mm, wrong person to ask. Do you think maybe you want to shut this down till daddy gets home? And he was like, no, I need to figure this out. And I was like, okay, well, what have you tried? And he explained it and made zero sense to me, but I was like, "Mm "Hmm, okay, what else could you do that you haven't? And just by having somebody else to bounce those ideas off of, like, and I had no idea what he was saying. Mm. (laughs) Right. I was like, you could be speaking Chinese to me right now for all I know. (laughs) My five-year-old seemed to understand him. And then my five-year-old came in and was like, oh, well, what about this? And my eight-year-old was like, oh, That could work. And so then the two of them started working together to try and solve the problem. And I was like, okay, great. You've got some support. And he did, he eventually worked his way through it. But in that moment when it wasn't working his initial way, he had that panic response where he was like, shit, this isn't working. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we have that, like, this isn't working. I'm frustrated. I'm getting emotional and irrational that's when your brain starts going, Ooh, we might be in danger. So we're going to start unplugging that top layer that has all the thinking pieces in it. So by having somebody else to talk to about it, by having me stay there and be calm, I was especially calm because I had no idea what was going on and having his brother then come in and also lend his calm to the situation, he was able to calm himself down and start thinking through it more rationally and thinking of different ways he could solve that problem. So often asking them like, well, How do you think we should do this? Right? And it can be something as simple as like, hey, we're making pizza. How do you think we should do this? What comes first? Well, and I love what you said as far
0: as our kids are practicing math every single day. And their teachers will say to us, they need to practice every single day. But we don't think about that with stuff in, in regards to their mental health and their behavior. You know, so it's like, we have so much that we could be practicing with them every day. And we don't realize that if we don't
1: practice, they're not going to get good at it. Exactly. And that's like the core um, focus of my parentability program is, okay, we're going to identify which skills your child is weak at that we know are going to cause problems, right? And that's where the proactive piece come in. We're going to try and figure out where the problem is likely to crop up before it crops up. And then we're going to practice working on that skill with them in a bunch of different ways, proactively, just for 10 minutes a day. Because after about 15 years of doing this, I've realized that asking a child to do something that's difficult for them, that they're not naturally good at for more than 10 minutes, after about 10 minutes, their brain's like, "Mm, out of energy, no more, and they get that like glazed look, and they make sense. And you're like, okay, you're not learning anymore, you're just going through the motions. Right? <laughs> and so, if we can keep them in that calm and alert state and get them to do something that's difficult for them for a short period of time, after a while, they start getting good at it, and that takes less energy. And then they can do it more frequently or for longer periods of time with the same amount of energy. So, it's keeping that like, we're going to practice this daily every single day, just for a little bit. Oh, I wish my 13 year
0: old was here to talk to you because the, the negative thinking and me trying to work on how she thinks about things. And she's like, it's too hard.
1: And right. And that's, it, it probably is too hard in that moment. And that's where like parents will often try and push through and force things. They're like, okay, we got to get this done. And if you can just put your nose to the grindstone and do it, then it can be over with. The brain doesn't really work that way. When the brain slams the brakes on, you're fucked. Like, there's nothing you can do. Sorry, I don't know. No, I've it's got a bit of a potty mouth. It's good. No, it's true. But, like, your brain will slam. And it's just like, you know, when you're like, I really, I really need to do this thing, whatever it is. And you sit there and you stare at it for like an hour and you're like, oh, this is, this is going to take me 10 minutes, but I cannot do it right now. Your brain will slam on the brakes and just be like, nope, you can't do it. I am not going to give you access to the information in order to do this because you don't have the energy to complete it. And so in that moment where they're going, it's too hard. I can't figure it out. That's when they need a break. That's when they need to go and regulate. And the problem is, is that most kids are taught to push through that instead of going, you know what, I need 10 minutes to go and calm myself down and then come back to it. When my young, my youngest, my oldest was in kindergarten, um, he was refusing to do his math work, which was odd because he's quite good at math. He's not—I'm dyscalculic, so I'm—I'm I'm not <laughs> any help in that area at all. But um, he's really good at math. So when his teacher came to me, and she was like, "He will not do math for love nor money." I was like, "Well, that's odd." Um, does he say anything when he refuses to do his math? And she was like, "Yeah, he asked to go for a run." And I was like, oh, because I've been teaching him since he was two years old, that when your brain slams the brakes on, you need to go calm yourself down. And his preferred way to calm himself down is by running. Wow. And so he knew, he was like, I can't do this right now. But if you let me go for a run for a few minutes, I'll come back and I'll deal with it. But he was in kindergarten and his teacher's like, I can't just let you go for a run. (laughs) Oh my gosh, poor baby. (laughs) had the conversation and I was like okay send me a waiver I'm happy like I would not have <laughs> signed, signed that waiver for my youngest he's a flight risk but for my <laughs> oldest I knew he could handle it and so they sent me the waiver the next day and you could tell like the teacher thought I was insane she was looking at me like I had two heads next day waiver goes in she calls me after school and she was like holy crap he would same thing I asked him to do his math he was like Mm-mm. and she was like okay go for a run, do three laps of the school and come back. And he was like, okay. And he got up, he went and he did his laps. He came back, did his math work. and was like, what's next? Wow. And she was like, why? Why? And is it like, because he knew he doesn't have the energy to do what you're asking him to do. And his brain had thrown on the brakes and he needed to wake it up again. And that is how he most reliably knows how to wake his brain up again. Because I've been teaching him since he was two that- if your brain is throwing on the brakes, you need to take a break and give yourself the sensory input your body needs to be able to think again. So Um, it's those finding those indicators, finding those times where you're like, "Mm, your brain is throwing on the brakes. You don't feel safe for whatever reason. You're low on energy. You know, there's a threat that you're perceiving that is or isn't there. Okay. Let's go take a break just five to 10 minutes and then come back and try again. And nine times out of 10, that solves the problem. I feel so bad
0: listening to this because my kids talk about how exhausting school is. It's just they they label it as it's exhausting to sit there all day. It's like yeah. it's like too much. And I just wish that we could fix that for
1: all the kids who feel that way at school. Oh God, don't get me started on ranting about the way the school system is. Oh me my
0: gosh, It's all going on? I, <laughs> Talk for another hour about it, but I mean, Ella on the way to school is like it—it it doesn't work. They're expecting us all to learn the same way. It's
1: not working, and, and at I'm the like, same time and at the same pace. Yes, and it's so yes. frustrating for them. Yes, and it's like they don't make accommodations for learning style, for different sensory needs. Like my youngest, he loves one of his ways to calm down is he loves to have deep pressure on his head. Mm-hmm. and so when he was little it entailed me just literally pushing down on his head to give him that input um but once he went to school he was like nobody will push on my head for me and I was like okay fair <laughs> enough um so, <laughs> oh so now he has a TheraBand that he keeps in his pocket mm-hmm. and so that he can pull that down over his head for himself and his teacher was so freaked out by it and I was like but that's how he gets the input that his body needs to regulate so that he can think, right? Makes so and much sense. I'm One of the things I'm working really hard on this year in particular is creating a program for teachers to help them understand all of this information so that they can incorporate it into their classrooms. Because when I was doing early intervention, it was amazing to me how I would come in and I was there for a kid who had a developmental diagnosis But we ended up transforming the behavior of the entire class because to be inclusive means if one kid's doing it, all the kids have access to it. And so once I started giving one kid access to their sensory needs, all the other kids were like, well, I need to do this. I need to do that. And the teacher would get overwhelmed. She's like, we can't do this all at the same time. Sure we can. We just need to implement breaks. And every kid is going to have a different kind of break. Mm -hmm. And it's going to look a little like center time, but it's got a completely different function. (laughs) yes and it's something that can be incorporated if we're aware of it if we're not aware of it we're going to keep thinking that kids are lazy stupid trying to get out of it and that you know we're we need to rein them in and teach them how to push through and persevere and that's not the problem (laughs) yeah it's certainly not working I mean middle school high school
0: they're they're totally exhausted from the lack of the breaks and the trying to
1: push through. You are spot on. And and often high school, I know like when I was in high school, the hours were wrong for that, right? Like, if, again, if we're looking at kids through a developmental lens, teenagers sleep later in the day. They're shifting to more of an adult schedule. And yet, for some reason, their school starting at 7.30 in the morning. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I Whereas know. we have little
1: kids who are up at the ass crack of dawn, <laughs> I know, who should be in school at seven thirty in the morning, and their school doesn't start till 9, 10 o'clock. Like what? How it, does it doesn't? Work? I know it doesn't make
0: any sense. I know my my son was at school to work out at six thirty this morning. Oh. Six thirty, they wanted him at school. I'm like, why aren't they doing this after school?
1: Hate right? like I I grew up on a farm, in like dairy country. And my most close high school was overpopulated. So they bussed us almost two hours to the next school, which meant that since that school started at eight, we needed to be on the bus at six. (gasps) And it was just a bus of zombified children. Yeah, Our school would literally, our bus would literally stop at Tim Hortons on the way in. And one or two people would go in and get everybody's order and just hand out coffee. Because by the time we got to school, we had to be three to four cups in if we wanted to function. Oh, that sounds, hor- <laughs> that sounds horrible. Right? When you think about it from a developing brain perspective, like who in their right mind set this schedule up? So looking at things from a developmental perspective, there's so many things we're making harder for ourselves just because we're not looking at how we naturally do things and how we can make that work for us. Yes, 150%. <laughs>
0: I, I know I'm talking to you too long, but I need to know why you say punishments don't work because you're right.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Right. Because punishment leads to shame, which leads to dysregulation, right? Mm -hmm. It's emotional and irrational again. When we tell our children what not to do, and then we try and force them into doing what they should do by punishing them by taking something away that's important to them or restricting them in some way that doesn't magically teach them what the opposite thing is to do right like I've and I've done this I've done this with a platoon of soldiers because my husband's in the military and I do workshops for the military family center every once in a while and I brought in all the ingredients to make a cake and I was like I'm not going to give you the recipe I'm going to tell you what to do and I stood up at the front of the room and i told them all of the ingredients not to use all of the things they shouldn't do don't mix the batter right now and they were like well what do we do and in the end i actually had one guy he just dumped everything into his bowl stirred it up and was like there i'm done like he had a full-on freaking tantrum this is a grown ass soldier He was so angry with me <laughs> because I wasn't telling him what to do. I was just telling him what not to do. And I was like, this is what we do when we punish our kids. We yes, do not do that. In fact, I'm going to take something away from you for doing that. But then we never tell them what to do instead. We never teach them how to do the opposite. We assume that children can draw the line between what we don't want them to do and what the alternative is but they don't know that. And in order to figure out what that alternative is, they have to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. They just have to keep going through this process of elimination and, you know, okay, well that didn't work. So I'm going to try something else. In the meantime, they're getting punished every time something that they try doesn't work. So for me, it's all about the, Hey, this isn't working. This is why it's not working. What could we do instead? And for that, especially with older children, like not, Children under six can't really go through this process, but once children go through that age of reason leap around the age of six, seven, and they can have that back and forth conversation with you, using Dr. Ross Green's plan B framework is the absolute best because it puts both of your concerns at equal footing and it brings you to a collaborative solution and you're able to like, be like, Hey, okay, this is my concern. You figure out what their concerns are, and you go, okay, how can we do both of those things without whatever the problem is? And you actually bring them in, which increases their buy-in. It makes them think like, okay, like I, have, I came up with a solution, and therefore I'm actually going to try to use it. And it always leaves the door open to come back if the solution isn't working and figure out why and try a new one without being like, well, if this doesn't work, I'm screwed because she's going to lock me up in my room for the next three weeks. Oh my gosh,
0: wait. So stay there because you said to um, use time ins, not time outs. No. No, did (laughs) I say that wrong? I hate
1: the whole time in thing. It's- What um, What is a time in? So a time in is basically forcing a child to be in your presence until they regulate, right? <laughs> and it's, okay, you f***ed up. So now I'm going to sit here with you <laughs> until you chill out enough to talk to me about how you f***ed up. Yeah, no, no, I do not agree with that at all. And, no. right? and it's that's no better than a time out where it's like, go be isolated in your room for the next three yeah, weeks. Yeah, no,
0: that doesn't work either.
1: Whereas for, so for... Dr. Green's framework, which is called Plan B, it's a collaborative problem solving framework. The first step is that you like sit down and you go, hey, this is the problem. This is what you seem to be having difficulty doing. Why? Right? Like, hey, you're having difficulty making it home after school in time for me to get to my class. What's up? And that way you're not assuming that it's something that they're deliberately doing to you, right? Like maybe the bus is always late and your schedule doesn't actually jive with the bus schedule. Maybe they have a teacher that is chatty can't get away from. Right. Right. Like there's so many reasons that children have about why they're not doing what you expect them to do. But most parents don't actually take the time to figure out what that is. Yes, so, that's so true. So like, hey, you're having difficulty calmly playing with your brother after dinner what's up well i'm tired and i don't like the way that he gets in my face and i really am not full yet i didn't have enough to eat at dinner so then i'm frustrated right and most kids won't just come out with it like that at first because when you ask them that question they're like "Mm, you're trying to trap me you are trying to dig for information so that you can get me in so the first couple of times you do the plan b framework it's like a month long process because they're not forthcoming. They don't trust the process yet. It can take a long time. But once you get through a couple of them and they see the progression of the different steps and they understand how you're going to address the problems, generally then like my eight-year-old, I can go downstairs and be like, hey, so you seem to be having difficulty putting all of your bear paw wrappers away when you're done playing your video games. What's up? And they will be like, "Mm, well, there's no trash can here. So I put them on the table and then I forget about them. Okay. Well, I would really like your bear paw wrappers to go in the trash can so that I don't have to clean them up because I'm the maid. Well, can we get a trash can down here, mom? Sure. Problem solved. Problem solved. So it gets to the point where you can have it within like a three minute frame because they trust you enough to tell you what the problem actually is. Yes. They know that you're not going to turn around and go, well, it's your responsibility to put your stuff in the dirt, right and just shame them into doing what you want them to do Oh yeah. you actually listen to their problem and go okay well I wonder how we can get your bear paw wrappers into the garbage without you having to wait until you're done playing video games to put them there a trash can mom okay cool let's get you we'll get you a trash can after school tomorrow that is um, a good example but the first time you do it and you're like hey you know, you seem to be having difficulty putting all your bear paw wrappers away. What's up? They're gonna be like, I don't know. I, I, I know I'm supposed to put them in the trash, but I forget. And you're like, well, that's not a good enough, right? They're expecting you to do that. <laughs> yeah. Whereas when you're like, and with plan B, the idea is to dig so that you understand the problem from their perspective before you put your perspective into it. So you they're like, well, I don't know. I'm like, well, I wonder if it's difficult to put your bear paw wrappers away because you have to wait until you're done with the video games, and you start asking them questions about what makes it difficult. Why is that hard? How do you feel about this? And really, fully understand their perspective before you start throwing your shit in the pile.
0: And that really doesn't good. mean that your
1: stuff is less important than theirs. Like if a solution doesn't meet your needs, if a solution doesn't address your concerns, it's not a solution you're going to use. And that's probably where parents are most concerned. They're like, well, if I collaborate with them and, you know, we're brainstorming and they're like, well, you know, you could just not care about the wrappers or I could put the wrappers away like once a month and you could be happy with that. Okay. We're going to write it down because we're brainstorming and not evaluating right now, but that doesn't meet my needs, which is For our house not to look like a sty. So, when we get to the evaluating part and we're going through what meets your needs, what meets my needs, what meets both of our needs, we're going to go, okay, I understand why you would feel this is an acceptable solution, but it's not meeting my need for a tidy house. So, we're going to cross that off the list. It doesn't put their needs above your needs, it just gives their needs space. Really good advice. The more that we can collaborate with our kids and bring them into the solution and get them thinking critically about what they're doing, one, it's going to set them up way better for adulthood. But two, it's going to build that trust so that they come towards us when there's a problem, they don't run away. Mm, That is the goal. And the second we get reactive, they
0: run away. Exactly. Because we're danger. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I have to ask you your podcast um fabulous podcast it's called the mudroom correct canada. where did you get that title from
1: well, the mudroom in canada at least the mudroom is usually the secondary entrance to a home which is very apt to the name covered in mud because yes that's it is a room where you bring in like you know, your winter gear and all of the slush and you take off your boots and it's also where families tend to congregate when people come in and talk about all their shit that happened during the day as somebody's taking off their jacket and their scarf and their boots and putting everything away. Um, it's messy yeah. and it's gross and it's a really, really important communal space in our home where we exchange information. And so that's where it came from, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about all the messy, gross, difficult stuff to do with parenting, but it's really important information that we exchange so that you understand why your kids are doing what they're doing.
0: Um, Perfect title. Awesome podcast. Go Go find the podcast. Tell them where to find you about your free resources. You have so much to offer.
1: Yeah. So my website's alannarobinson.com, Alanna with two L's, one N. And um, on my website, there's a big orange button for my free class, which you can take at any time. And it really goes through the entire framework that I teach my clients about why your kids are behaving the way they're behaving. And three major mistakes that pretty much every parent I've ever met makes that (laughs) is actually making your child misbehave more. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, I love that class. It's there. It's free to take. Um, I also have a Facebook group, the Parenting Posse, which is 10,000 Parents Strong. And that's a peer support Facebook group where we have a lot of my former clients, a lot of people who have followed me for a long time and a great team of moderators to really help parents kind of get out of their head and talk through what their difficulties are and their challenges are and connect them with resources that are going to solve those problems. Um, And then you can also find me on Instagram at Parenting Posse. And I love to do little tiny 30 minute, one minute snippets where I will give you like the nuts and bolts advice that you need to get through a specific situation. So follow me over there too. Oh my goodness. Well, we all need to go find you.
0: Um, It has been so wonderful talking to you. I just loved it and loved learning from you today. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun.